welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. Those of us in the first world who live relatively comfortable lives, at some level we know that the material comfort with which we live is built on the backs of people primarily in the global south, in the third world. And we know that's inconsistent with our own moral principles. We know it violates our concern for the fundamental dignity of all people and for equality. That's the voice of Robert Jensen. On this week's show, we speak to Robert Jensen about his book, All My Bones Shake, and society's four fundamentalisms that we need to deal with to move forward in a healthy way. So stay tuned. We are privileged to have as our guest Dr. Robert Jensen. He teaches media law, ethics, and politics at the University of Texas at Austin. His books include Get Enough, The Heart of Whiteness, Citizen of the Empire, and Right in Descent. His latest book is All My Bones Shake. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jensen. Great to be with you, Sylvia. At the root of the current political economy and ecological chaos is a national religious unrest that is thwarting our self-awareness and slowing our spiritual progress to a glacial crawl. This is a quote from the cover on your book. In our society, we, we seem to think of religion as the belief in some type of deity, whether that be a Christianity religion, Muslim religion, or any kind of religion. I would argue there seems to be another religion, and that is the religion of the marketplace, where we accept things as the natural result of the marketplace. And you actually covered this in your book. So for our audience, where does this come from? Where does this blind faith in the market come, and and how does it manifest? Well, of course, you're right that, that we talk about religion and spirituality and faith and the things that define us. But in reality, in the contemporary United States, and the truth is it's blanketed much of the world, there is a kind of market fundamentalism, an economic fundamentalism that not only claims capitalism is the best way to organize an economy, but claims it's the only way, it's the natural way. It's an attempt to make a set of human choices about how to distribute the wealth of the world as if they were natural, as if they were beyond critique. And that's a kind of core definition of fundamentalism, a belief in a, in a set of principles uh, with absolute certainty in a way that can't be challenged. But, of course, an economy is a set of human choices. Why do we accept this market fundamentalism? Well, part of it is simply the effort that has been put into a propaganda system by mostly a relatively small elite to get ordinary people to believe that the incredibly unequal distribution of wealth in the world is somehow unavoidable. But, of course, we know it's not. And we know that we have within our grasp uh, if we were to do so, uh, ways to to devise an economy that would not be perfect, that would still require a lot of struggle, <clears throat> but would not produce the profound inequality which now structures the world economy. I would just remind listeners that as we speak about half the world's population, according to the World Bank, more than 3 billion people on this planet today live on less than $2.50 a day U.S. for everything, food, shelter, education, medical that is, half the population lives in a kind of abject poverty. I 
would want to believe that that is not our only option, that there are other ways to devise an economy. And I think, paradoxically, although in this country many people who identify as Christians also accept this market fundamentalism, I think Christianity is a source of resistance to this fundamentalism. And in the progressive fashioning of a of an understanding of Christianity, I think there is a lot of hope. One of the things you address in your book is you, you say there are four fundamentalisms. So I, I wonder, you, you talked about the market fundamentalism and how we, we see this invisible hand sort of um, fixing everything and the market dictating the choices. So it, it implies that citizens have choices. So perhaps we should start by addressing the issue of choice then, because if you are a Haitian, your choices are very different than if you are a worker in Canada or the U.S. So how is this constructed and maintained, this myth of equality and democracy in our society? Well, of course, first of all, we should recognize that within the contemporary corporate capitalist system, it's not a complete myth. There is some freedom to choose, and there is some movement uh, from people who begin in, in low socioeconomic places and rise up. That is, there is a kernel of truth to the notion in capitalism that anybody can make it. Certainly there are people who were raised poor who became wealthy. Certainly there is some level of choice in the system. But the question is, does everyone have meaningful choices with the kind of equality that makes it possible to truly choose? And the answer there is, of course, no, because capitalism has been and always will be, from my point of view, a wealth-concentrating system. And and kind of the lie of capitalism is the idea that everybody can make it. But, of course, the system is premised on not everyone making it. And when we look across time and, and space, we see that historically that relatively small elite, which has for the most part been concentrated in the first world, in Europe, the United States, Japan, a few other places, has used its power, it's used force, violence, coercion, it's used all of that to maintain that inequality. Well, I think when, when you step back and look at the whole system, one sees that capitalism is, in fact, inconsistent with democracy because the way capitalism concentrates wealth leads to a concentration of political power. One can see that capitalism is inconsistent with our own principles and values about what it means to be a human being. Uh, a belief in the dignity of all people, a belief in equality. And for those reasons, I think capitalism is fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. I think to take seriously the text and the tradition of the Christian faith is to be anti-capitalist. And in fact, if one looks back at the early Christians in the first two or three centuries after Christ was killed, you see that Many people in that era believed that to be a Christian was to live communally, to share, to renounce private property. Well, that's not capitalism, in case anybody isn't clear. <laughs> All right, so the Christian tradition itself is rooted in a rejection of the inequality and materialism that defines capitalism. I think the principles of Christianity, uh, when appropriately understood today, would lead to a rejection of the current capitalist system. And that's why... In the book, I, I, I try to root myself in that Christian tradition, which is the tradition of the culture I come out of. And I think the struggle to define what that Christianity means is very important. You brought two very important points, and I think that's how religious 
has been sort of thwarted to be in favor of capital and economic fundamental um, principles. And I just want to point out that we, we recently, I recently interviewed Bruce Gagnon. He pointed out that, you know, with the election of President Obama, everyone was celebrating a shift in change. And yet, he says, you know, in one year, President Obama has done what no other Republican has ever done in the history of the U.S. And he was, he turned $12.3 trillion in bailouts. Nine out of every $10 was given to the banks. And, and I'm reminded of, of the story in the Bible where Jesus spoke against this. And this idea that we, we accept certain policies blindly, I think needs to be addressed. I, I, I'm trying to reconcile the fact that we take this as a, you know, uh, without challenging. On one hand, we, we say the bailouts needed to be given. Why? Who profits in an economic crisis? Who's profiting out of the massive military budgets that are being issued? So it seems to me there's a structure behind this. Can you speak to this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, in times of crisis, there is always a push on the part of elites to define the crisis as unmanageable without immediate action from the top. And, of course, sometimes that's true. If, if your country is being invaded by another country, perhaps that might be true. But with an economic crisis like the one we just lived through or are still living through, uh, there was another option, and that option was to rethink the fundamental nature of the system, to use the crisis not simply to shore up and reinforce the inequality in the existing system, but to ask, is this a moment where we can devise something new? And that can happen with the input of everyone. There could, be, there could have just as easily been a process when the subprime mortgage crisis hit to convene a kind of national conversation about what we want in an economy. Uh, and I think that the reason that didn't happen was not because it was impossible, but because people with power didn't want it to happen. And I think... The tension around this is mounting. Ordinary people increasingly, even people who five, ten years ago would have endorsed the capitalist system in the United States on the assumption that it would provide for them, are now seeing that the people who run that capitalist system really don't care about ordinary people, and that ordinary people are starting to, to push back and to recognize their real fate in that system. Now, the, I think the, the real important moment for those of us who consider ourselves politically active or organizers or community activists is can we marshal that resentment into positive channels to challenge the system? Uh, you know, Barack Obama happens to be the guy running things at the moment, but it's not the guy running things at the moment in Washington who really holds power. It's the people who control the productive capacity of the country, the, the capitalists in that sense, the owners and the high-level managers, uh, and we have to challenge them. And then eventually, if we're successful, we give the Barack Obamas of the world a choice. You either sink your, your fate in with the people or you ally yourself with the wealthy and the privileged, and it's a choice then politicians have to make. You know, all of this is a long-term struggle that's been going on for decades, centuries, in which ordinary people have been trying to take control of our own lives. And this is a moment... Um, where I think there are things possible 
precisely because of the crisis. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the fundamentalism, uh, this fundamentalism that you speak of in your book, of the state, this this nationalism that um, promotes or sometimes blinds people to the actions of their government. How does this unfold? And, and, and you know, because it seems every empire has always justified whatever crimes they commit as being in the interest of the of the people. This sort of benevolent empire. How does it manifest, and why should we be aware of it and and fight against it? I think you're again hitting on an incredibly important subject, especially here in the United States, which is kind of the empire of of the modern world at this point. Uh, you know, the, as you point out, most imperial powers in the past, whether it was Britain, France, you know, for a brief time Germany, Russia, they often justified their crimes around the world, the crimes that exploited the resources of other places and oppressed the people of those places. They justified those crimes as somehow being in the interests of advancing civilization, of civilizing the natives. These are very, you know, obvious justifications and failed justifications. Of course, no serious person would would believe them today. Yet here in the United States, we have our own imperial justifications, mostly around the idea of bringing democracy to other parts of the world. Well, we have to break down that fundamentalism, that sort of unthinking acceptance of uh, a set of principles that really don't conform to reality. Does the United States bring democracy to the world? Well, I think we can look across the board, especially in the post-World War II era at U.S. interventions, and see that, in fact, the United States has done more to thwart democracy in other parts of the world than to advance it. So we, just as we have to break down the notion that markets and capitalism are inevitable, that fundamentalism must be challenged. So must the fundamentalism around the special role of the United States, the idea that the United States, by definition, is always doing good in the world. Well, a lot of people in the United States hold on to that fundamentalist notion as well. And I think all we're saying is that, you know, reality does not conform to fundamentalist notions. Reality is complex. Reality has a historical base that we have to try to understand. Reality includes an honest accounting of power, privilege, and oppression, and when we do that, of course, the fundamentalism melts away, just as I think it does in the religious arena, that when you fully understand the complexity of the human experience, it's hard to hold on to fundamentalisms, and that's what we have to do is kind of ruthlessly tell the truth about this country, this economy, and our place in the world. Your book also talks about the technological fundamentalism, and uh, I want to I want to address this because we are living in an era of, particularly in Latin America, of incredible aggression. Uh, we see the coup in Honduras taking place, and the world has stood up and denounced the coup. And in many cases, we defend these policies as this developmental idea, and technology sort of goes hand in hand. But I think technology in the interests of whom and technology for whom um, so what do you mean by the technological fundamentalism how do you see it being counterintuitive to a society that is inclusive and pluralistic you listen to Latin Ways to support our work please visit latinwaysmedia.com and consider becoming a member for as little as one dollar per month thank you for listening I think here the, the critique and concern about a kind of high-energy, high-technology life is rapidly spreading. 
the one thing we know without question is that the fundamental health of the ecosystem that makes our own lives possible is in dramatic decline, and that that decline is overwhelmingly because of human intervention into the ecosystem in ways that are not sustainable. It's the way we farm. It's the way we extract materials from the world. It's the way we dump toxins back into that world. Everyone understands, at least everyone who's willing to tell the truth, that we have created a system based on the high-energy potential of coal, oil, and natural gas and the technological advances that have come with that, that we based a system on an unsustainable relationship to the Earth. Now, what I call and others have called technological fundamentalism is really the belief that whatever problems have come from that high-energy, high-technology world can be fixed with simply more high-energy, high-technology. And you see this over and over again. We, we talk about the energy problem, and there is a scrambling to believe that we can invent new ways of creating as much energy as coal, oil, and natural gas have provided, even though that's an extremely contentious claim. We see the, the problems created, such as global warming, you know, the loss of the ozone layer, all these things. And instead of asking a fundamental question, which is should human beings adjust the way we interact in the world, lower our expectations for energy use and consumption to try and bring our way of living back into some sort of balance with the larger world, that question is never really considered. And all that we talk about in the dominant culture is how to find new high-energy, high-technology solutions to the problems that high-energy, high-technology has created. And that may end up being the most dangerous fundamentalism. I think, you know, religious fundamentalism is dangerous. We see the negative consequences when people have an unthinking belief in the absolute righteousness of a religious system. We talked about the problems of market fundamentalism, of national fundamentalism. But with technological fundamentalism, unfortunately, we're not just talking about the inequality within the human family. We're talking about whether the human family can continue to live in any sustainable way on this planet. And so many of us are concerned that this reflexive technological fundamentalism, this belief that technology will always save us, whether that might end up being the most dangerous fundamentalism of them all. I think in society we tend to be selective as to what we consider to be important. And one of the ways militarism has been able to advance is by creating this fear of the other in, our, in society. And who are the other? Those who we do not recognize being equal to us or similar to us, whether that be skin or language or, you know, whatever we define as different. What, what do we lose when we ignore inequity, injustice, in the pursuit of our goals for development or an improved quality of life? What, what, what do we lose in the long run? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. We lose our own humanity. Those of us in the first world who live relatively comfortable lives, at some level we know that the material comfort with which we live is built on the backs of people primarily in the global south in the third world. And we know that's inconsistent with our own moral principles. We know it violates our concern for the fundamental dignity of all people and for equality. Yet the material comfort with which we live often allows us to ignore that. But I think when we do ignore that, in a very basic way, we lose some of our own humanity. 
And here, I think, is a place where traditional religion actually can help, because if you think about whether it's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, all of them are, at their core, I believe, are a call to recognize the universal nature of the human family. That is, all of them include principles that remind us that the value of my life sitting here in the United States today is of no greater or lesser value than the lives of people across the world. That that person who might be living in sub-Saharan Africa on less than $2.50 a day, that that person has the same moral value as I do, that that person's child has the same moral value as my child. That is the universalizing call of religion, and it's clearly in the core, at the core of the Christian faith. Now, the problem, of course, is that religion can also be a way in which we distance ourselves from other human beings. That is, religion, although I think it is a call to the universal, also often leads people to, to draw the artificial boundaries you're talking about. Well, there's, there's me and my group, the good Christians, and then there's all the sinners out in the world. And, and you can see how religion is, from my point of view, perverted to create barriers instead of break down those barriers. But again, I think that's why, for those of us who have an interest in struggling over the definition of Christianity and other faith traditions, we have a lot of work we can do not to reinvent, not to invent a new religion, but simply to say it's time in, 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 the, in the prophetic sense, that it's time to honor the true values of the religion, to honor that universal conception of the human family. All of that's within our grasp. There's a, a tradition, there's a text, there's a space that we call church where we can come together and do this. And I think that's, for me at least, the animating spirit behind my own interest in religion. You, in your book, talk about power over in a dead world. What do you mean by power over, and what are the alternatives? When we think about the question of power, in conventional terms, power is defined as the ability to make people do what they would otherwise not do. I have power over you, Sylvia, if I can make you do things you would otherwise not do. And that's what we, we tend to call power over. And, of course, power over is real. It operates in the world. It often has disastrous consequences. But we can also think about power as power with. That is, my power is not over you. It's with you. It's in the collaborative, creative possibilities of you and I combining forces. And that's a different sense of power. That's the power, I think, that makes it possible to imagine a decent future. The power over, I believe, can lead only to a, a dead world. And, and I would make the argument right now that in the United States, given the values of this national fundamentalism and the market fundamentalism, often connected to a very reactionary religious fundamentalism, I would describe that as a dead culture, a culture that has no capacity to generate creativity and to generate life. All it can do is extract from others, which leads to death. So I, I know it sounds rather perhaps dramatic, but I really do think in many profound ways in the contemporary United States, we live in a dead culture, a culture that hangs on to ideas that are no longer consistent with reality. With, that hangs on to systems that are not consistent with a decent future. And I think we have to create something new. My own view is that that's not likely to happen in Washington, D.C. or on Wall Street in the centers of power. 
It's going to happen at the margins in places like Austin, Texas, where I live, where, you know, as we speak, we're working to acquire a building for a new community center. We're working to create some worker-owned cooperatives where people can control their own their own economic life. We're, we're talking about resisting, you know, racism and sexism. We're talking about coming together in this sense of power with, not to control each other, but to try and find ways to create something new. And that's where I think the real hope for the future lies. What do we need to create this new society that you describe? Well, I think we need a, a 12-pack of beer and some uh, barbecue. No, I'm kidding. That's the solution in, in, to everything in Texas. Just get a 12-pack of beer and some barbecue and everything will be fine. What does it take? Well, I think it takes, uh, first of all, a kind of honesty to confront the very dire circumstances we find ourselves in. And beyond that, I think it takes uh, a sense of hope. And by hope, I don't mean unrealistic, overly optimistic uh, assessments. I think uh, you know people have used the term a kind of stubborn hope a hope that won't give up even when things are are looking bleak. And I think we should tell the truth. Things do look pretty bleak in this country at the moment. Much of the population is in the grips of these fundamentalisms. Yet I think that we we rescue our own humanity, especially those of us with privilege. And I have a lot of privilege. I'm white. I'm male. I'm uh, professionally educated and employed. You know, the way I'm going to save my own humanity is not by holding on to my privilege or holding on to my resources. It's going to be coming into spaces where I willingly give up those resources in a collaboration with others. That's how we save ourselves. You know, sometimes people look at the political work I do and they think somehow I'm this very noble person. And the fact is I'm probably the most selfish human being I know. I do this work because I want to, in a sense, save my own life. I want to create or help create a world in which I can be fully human. And the world we live in right now does not allow that. The world we live in closes off so many avenues for us to express our own humanity. It keeps us trapped in the corporate world. It keeps us trapped in conventional politics. It keeps us trapped in a commodified commercial culture that is always telling us to buy, buy, buy. I was speaking to a journalist from uh, Honduras, Gerardo Torres. He's a young man who started a movement called Los Necios, the stubborn. And they speak precisely what you're talking about, this stubborn hope, this idea that although you are constantly told you don't have a right to have those dreams, he says we're going to have them and we're going to define those who tell us we do not have the right to, to pursue a, a society with dignity and you know just a decent quality of life. Um, what, what inspires you? What inspires your work to, to continue to struggle? Well, I can tell you that's very easy. What inspires me is the people like you just described. Here in Austin, I've been incredibly fortunate to work with people, often younger people, uh, people from uh, what we call traditionally minority communities, people from uh, parts of society that are not as wealthy, and I watch them struggle against much greater obstacles than I face myself, and I see them struggling and struggling joyously. You know, as someone who's older and more established and, and materially in a much more comfortable position, what I've discovered is when I go to those people and say, I want to join you in your struggle, I want to commit my own time and resources to the projects that you have going, that, as I said, I, I benefit tremendously. 
this is what gives my own life meaning. Uh, it's what deepens my own sense of my own humanity. Uh, there's inspiration every time we turn the corner. We just have to be willing to see it. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for people who want to read your book, All My Bones Shake is an amazing book. It really challenges to, to look at our values and our own uh, beliefs and how they contribute or perpetuate a system of injustice and what can we do about it. So how can people access your book? Well, the easiest way to find me if you have access to a computer is just to Google my name, Robert Jensen, and the first page that comes up will be mine. Thank you again for joining us. Great to be with you, Sylvia. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.